Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to the second season of Medical Women Talking. The podcasts are made up of conversations with some amazing women doctors who've had incredible careers. Being a woman and a doctor can be challenging, but these conversations are designed to be shared to help those women aspiring to fulfilling careers and to leadership roles. We hear a lot of negative stuff about medicine these days, but these inspiring stories show us that medicine can still be brilliant. Listen and be inspired. My name's Susie Lishman. Uh, I'm a pathologist and a medical examiner. And um, when Jane first interviewed me for this series, I asked her who'd be interviewing her as uh, the series felt incomplete without having her story. And the answer, as it turns out, is me. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat to Professor Dame Jane Dacre, rheumatologist, medical educator, past president of the Royal College of Physicians, and now multi-talented, multitasker with a wide range of interesting roles. Jane, thank you for agreeing to be on the other side of the interview today. Um, would you start with a summary of your career journey, please? Uh, yes, well, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to interview me. I was hoping to avoid this, but there you go. Um, yeah, well, I decided I was going to be a doctor at the age of 12. I have no real reason why. Um, my father was a doctor, so maybe I was just not very imaginative. Um, and I decided I was going to work for that. And I, and I suspect on reflection, I was good at science at school and I also liked people. And, and the sort of science I was good at was biology. So, so that was what uh, put me um in the position of looking in looking in that direction um so i went to a small girls public school which was not very aspirational so i had to work very hard to get the right grades to get into medical school so i started to be very conscientious because i had that in mind um and so yeah i went to medical school the first couple of years I found quite difficult because I hadn't been to a school that really did science. Um, and then once I got into the clinical years at, at UCL Medical School, actually, I, I started to really enjoy it and started to, to flourish. Um, slightly unusually, I suppose, I got married during my last year of medical school. Um, and one of the strange things about that now is that my father being an anaesthetist had a name that was recognized at the time amongst surgeons and when I was at medical school people used to say oh are you Peter's daughter and I really hated it and so uh, I changed my name when I got married to Dacre and as people may know I, I did that for anonymity and as it turned out the Dacre family uh, because of my Daily Mail brother-in-law were much more notorious than my original name would have been and nobody would have known my original name anyway. So that was perhaps an early mistake. <laughs> so um, after you qualified, um, I know obviously you trained in, in rheumatology and medical education has become a really important part of your life. What led you down those paths? Well, I, uh, I, I actually, I'm sorry to say this, uh, Susie, I did some SHO work as a pathologist in microbiology and I really missed the patients. 
I just uh, really missed talking to the old lady, the elderly ladies and the, and the patients and wanted to get back into the clinical cold face. Um, so I did the MRCP. I was working as a, an SHO in Bristol at the time. Um, and I came back to London and got a, a job at the Homerton Hospital. Um, in fact, it was the old Hackney Hospital in those days as a medical registrar, and I absolutely loved it. Um, and during that time, I started to teach a lot of medical students. And there was a funny thing about it at the time, because I think I was quite a lot less formal, having come from the UCL, than the traditional teaching that they'd had at Bart's. And so I was mentioned in dispatches for being somebody who was um, an approachable teacher. And so in a way that sparked my interest in medical education. So I started doing extra training sessions whilst I was going uh, along with my 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 own training program as a medical registrar and then as a rheumatology uh, registrar. And then um, I had my first child and then everything fell apart. Uh, I, I was really unwell. Um, I had a disastrous first labour that resulted in um, a, a high forceps and having some um, bladder damage. And also my eldest daughter uh, was, was born with a broken collarbone because it was so difficult to get her out. And um, I had great difficulty in, in passing urine after that and had to be catheterized. I had to have a suprapubic catheter, which went on for weeks. And in trying to get rid of the catheter, I was given an overdose of distigmine by an obstetrician. And I had a full-blown cholinergic crisis on the landing at home. And uh, I, everybody at the time thought that maybe I would not survive it. And um, so I was admitted to hospital and had to have intravenous atropine for about three or four days to, to stop this. And um, when I got back home, I was not not very well uh, for a, for a while, and had a young baby, so I had a, a a lot of problems. And and strangely, what it did was just spurred me on to get back to get back to work because I just needed to get my my life back together again. Um, so I. Actually, also during that time, I lost my job because I was in a research job with no maternity cover, no maternity leave. And um, the money ran out and they said, well, we haven't got any money for maternity leave. So that's it. Sorry. And so I had to, to fight my way back, uh, which I did as a, um, a sort of half paid registrar. Uh, for about a year and I had a young baby and the whole thing was really difficult but at that time a senior registrar's job came up and I uh, had I think a nine-month-old baby I'd been really ill and I was was not sure whether whether I could go back to work full-time and I ended up sharing a job doing the first uh, job share, physician job share, 
uh, with Tim Spector, Tim of the Zoe app. And I did that because Tim was getting really interested in research and I was uh, struggling to get back to work and I wanted to, to work full time, but didn't want to have to do all of the on calls. So we shared the job and uh, had a, a, a slightly bizarre, but pretty good um, training. And then I uh, got, was doing half a senior registrar job. And at the same time, I got a research fellowship eventually. Um, and so I did those two together. Um, and that was at that was at Bart's. Uh, and so I'd still kind of kept up my interest in medical education and they were wanting to explore clinical skills and a clinical skills centre at Bart's. And so I was was sort of um, invited to apply uh, to help to develop the clinical skills centre at Bart's because it was quite unusual in those days to to be as focused on education as I was. So I became the first senior lecturer in clinical skills in the country. Um, I then worked four days a week rather than five so that I could spend Fridays going going to Sainsbury's and doing the shopping and keeping my act together until Tim uh, told me it was time I became a full-time skiver rather than a part-time martyr. And at that stage, I went back up to full time and I've been full time ever since and had two more children. So I, I although I kind of did have a bit of PTSD after my first pregnancy, I I, um, I managed to deal with it. That's an amazing story. And I, I think I've known you 15 years and I'm not sure I knew all of that. Um, I was going to ask you about challenges along the way, but I think you've had enough that you've already mentioned. Um, well, I don't, I don't, I, uh, I sort of, um, you can either dwell on these things and let them define you or you can roll your sleeves up. And I think that what that taught me was that I was in the roll your sleeves up school. And so uh, I didn't want to dwell on it. I just wanted to get get back to doing what I thought was what I wanted to be doing. Can you tell me a bit more about the full-time skiver rather than part-time martyr bit? What what do you mean by that? Well, um, Tim was very, he's a very entrepreneurial, able guy. And he could see that uh, I was working part-time officially, but putting in full-time hours and doing it so that I didn't feel guilty about going to the shops. And uh, he said to me, if he wanted to go and play golf on a weekday, he would just do it and not tell anybody. And he felt I was martyring myself and probably shouldn't be, but just should be a bit more confident about being flexible with with how I lived my life. Because at that time, uh, my husband, Nigel, was an aspiring television journalist and he was the editor of various news programmes, including News at 10. And I used to have regular childcare crises because every time... There was a war in a small country uh, or somebody got shot or there was a TV event. We'd have this fight over who would look after the children and how we'd get to work. So I I really needed some kind of flexibility, um, which which I had to be quite uh, strong about in, in order to get it. 
Yeah, I think that's a really valuable point. And I think something that we all have to get our heads around at, at some stage. Um, but I really like Tim's way of putting it. Um, given that you were doing all of these things and you were a full-time consultant and you were doing medical education and you had three children and a husband with a challenging career, at what stage and why did you start to take on external roles? Um, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't immediate, but uh, it was actually due to um, a guy called Mike Besser who'd seen that I was doing a lot of education and, and I'd created done quite a few firsts in education because I was just interested in doing it so things like the first finals OSCE uh, I ran at Bart's Hospital um, and the first clinical skills centre and so um, at the time they needed uh, someone to be the medical secretary for the part one board of the MLCP and so just after I'd had my third child and was coming back um, to work from maternity leave, Mike Besser uh, approached me and asked me if I would take on that role. And that was at, at, at the MLCP in London. And for some completely um, crazy reason, I thought I would give it a go. And so I became responsible for setting the papers for the part one MLCP. Uh, that the the senior physician at the time was incredibly fastidious and had enormous attention to detail and made my life absolute hell. But I I did the role and so I started to get into working for the for the Federation of the Medical Royal Colleges. Um and I suppose to cut a long story short, they were also at the stage when they were wanting to revamp the MLCP exam. So I got involved in redesigning the MLCP and actually uh, creating the single best answer questions and also PACES. Um, together with my colleague, Peter Copelman, we, we helped to design PACES and we designed the communication skills uh, stations, uh, which still exists now, um, because there was no postgraduate exam that that involved what we thought was adequate um, training in and examination in communication skills. So we had great fun doing that. And so that was implemented, I think it was June 2001 um, and is still going, which is which is good. So I went up through the ranks in the in the RCP exam and ended up being the medical director of the of the whole exam um which fitted in well with my job at ucl because uh during that time i started to do research into exams and the creation of exams and who did well and who did badly and differential attainment and a lot of that kind of stuff um so off the back of that i applied for academic promotion and became a professor of medical education. But I was still a rheumatologist and general physician in the day job. Fascinating, thank you. Um, you've clearly got a lot of plates spinning. Do you ever drop any and how do you deal with it if you do? <laughs> of course, I drop them all the time. Um, I, I think one of the things about spinning a lot of plates is that it makes you almost expect occasional failures 
and expect things to to go wrong and a mantra that that uh i've learned to love is that the best is the enemy of the good and although we start off as women in medicine being trying to be perfectionists and and uh doing everything really really well i have come to learn that 90% or 80% has got to be good enough and uh, uh but yeah childcare disasters are the absolute worst uh if a child is ill or if something happens to one of the children um and it completely pulls the rug from from under you in 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 terms of what you're doing and and it's quite difficult sometimes to to keep the show on the road yeah um, you talked a lot about the roles that you took on seem to sort of lead on from one to another or people approached you and suggested them. Is there anything that you regret not applying for or that you did apply for and didn't get that you wish that you had? Um, well, I another philosophy that I have is that I try not to have regrets. So I, I'm a sort of pick yourself up, dust yourself down and get on with it person. And, you know, of course, there are opportunities missed. But in fact, in the end, it it turns out all right. Uh, so, uh, yes, of course, there are various jobs and things that I haven't got over the years, as as with everybody. And you feel quite bruised about it for a while and you feel unworthy and you feel stupid and you wish you'd never, never even thought that you might have done it and and then i move on so i i try not to try not to dwell on the disasters uh, i suppose the worst time was was um when i was struggling to get back into medicine after having claire my first child because i just thought that you know that the whole that i got everything the wrong way around and that it wasn't going to work out and i was going to be a bad mother and a you know bad doctor and all of that do you feel you came up against any particular barriers as a woman? I mean, you've said you job shared with Tim Spector, which was quite an unusual thing to do at the time. And you managed to juggle all of this while having three children and with the childcare challenges that you had. Um, did you feel supported by colleagues or was it a real challenge? Um, I, that my whole family side of my life was ignored by colleagues, apart from that one comment by Tim. So I had to pretend that everything was all fine and dandy and and um uh not bring not mention my children in in the first few years i i, I have to say that's changed um i've become much more open about it really because a load of other people have children too and we need to be able to talk about it to to share share the problems so uh i, I did feel or i had felt in my university career that I reached a glass ceiling. And that was why I stood to be president of the Royal College of Physicians, because I felt that as a woman, I just was not even thought about for academic promotion within my within my home organization. And so I went to the when I stood for the college and was was elected and and uh, that sort of made it all better. But at the time, yes, I did feel that I that if I'd invented, I, I quite like to innovate, and I'd come up with things that I thought were innovations. They'd be taken away and given to some bloke. 
so you've achieved so much and you've been president of the Royal College of Physicians and you've just done so and you continue to do so many things. What keeps you going? Why do you keep doing this? You don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> No, well, that's true, but I see a world around me where things need fixing. Um, and so I quite like to get involved in making making things feel as if they're working a bit better. And, I, and I've discovered that that moving the policy levers is a good way of trying to get things fixed. It's, it's often slow and it's incomplete and it's not it's not perfect. Uh, but working in policy, for example, I now have a passion about women with children, probably from my own experience. Um, and so I feel passionate about trying to do things or get involved in things that will make that better for those coming through because it shouldn't be such a struggle. Obviously, you're doing a lot of work now to support young women, uh, particularly develop leadership potential and, and skills. Do you feel leadership is for everyone or is it? something very specific that only a certain number of people should be doing? I think some kind of leadership is for everyone. So, you know, even if you're just raising your children, you have to learn how to make that particular team work. So, so some kind of leadership is for everyone. But I think that sort of highest echelons of leadership, not everybody wants, wants to do. Uh, I, I went to a retirement do yesterday for um, a, a clinical colleague and there are some people who are completely fulfilled and really enjoy their work just dealing with patients. And so it's it, it's it's horses for courses, I suppose. Different people want to do different things. Um, I have done less direct patient care in the last few years because I've been um, doing more leadership and other people prefer to use their leadership skills on on trying to deal with the patient in front of them. Do you have any particular role models or people who inspired you along the way? My first role model, who's now a great friend who really inspired me, was actually Parveen Kumar, because the two of us shared a firm together at the Homerton Hospital uh, it was the purple firm and we used to call ourselves the purple ladies and we were the first all-female clinical team um, at Bart's, the two of us together and we had a ball and uh, are still good friends now. I can imagine, we, wow, what a team. <laughs> we, uh, we channeled ourselves, we, we tried to be the pink ladies from Greece, yeah. we were the purple firm so we called ourselves <laughs> the purple ladies. Oh, fantastic. Um, and coming towards the end now, um, do you have any particular advice or words of wisdom or lessons that you've learned that you'd like to share with women who are perhaps at an earlier stage of their career and looking to what they might do next? I think uh, I think I would say that it'll all be all right in the end. I, I think you see in the middle of people's careers a lot of people really struggling with um, with keeping keeping body and soul together and having children and working and, 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 and it doesn't go on forever. And, and I think you can have it all, but not all at the same time is perhaps what, what you should say. Uh, and the other thing is to, if you can, and I know that different people have different capacity, uh, if you can pick yourself up, dust yourself down and carry on, uh, things get better eventually so so you can ride out if you can ride out the rough times it becomes worth it in the end 
That's brilliant. Jane, thank you so much for talking to me today. I could talk to you for hours and hopefully we'll continue this over a glass of wine sometime. Um, but I'm so pleased that your insights and experience uh, are going to be shared with everybody along with all of the other podcasts. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you very much for, for interviewing me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Women Talking. It's been a privilege to spend time with all these medical women. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season. Don't forget there are many other interviews in season one.